Two and a Half Admins, episode 103. I'm Joe. I'm Jim. And I'm Gary. And here we are again. And once again, you're covering for Alan, Gary. So thanks a lot for that. No worries. Let's do a bit of news then. And firstly, Meta, formerly Facebook, want to get rid of the leap second. It's a pain in the butt dealing with leap seconds in modern operating systems because the folks who decide when there should or should not be a leap second, it tends to be a bit arbitrary. Every once in a while, they even decide they want to take one away rather than giving you an extra one. And modern operating systems and their timing mechanisms aren't really set up for that. So that kind of sucks. Meta's idea is instead to smear time, which basically just means rather than inserting a second all of a sudden at the end of a year, you just stretch it out until you've taken a second longer for that year. This is basically the way that the NTP, Network Time Protocol Daemon, already works when it adjusts your time to match an internet clock. Uh, it does not do so by just instantly whacking your clock off to the new value. It smears time, just like what Meta's talking about. It very slowly elongates things out so that there's not, you know, a worrying gap or even repeated time in your server logs when it happens. As much as I love to slag on Meta for things, I'm going to give them a pass on this one. This is pretty much fine. I do think it's a little overstated in that... For most people, it's not even really going to matter because they're either already using NTP and their time will smear to whatever the upstream you know stratum is doing anyway, or they just don't care about that level of granularity and they'll be perfectly content with something more like an NTP date that just changes the time at a whack if need be. Yeah, and to be clear here, when we say really slowly, we're talking 27 seconds since 1972. So it's not like this is a huge thing and we're going to see time elongated by some crazy amount. We're talking less than 30 seconds in 40 plus years. It's not a huge amount of time. So yeah, as much as I'd like to turn around and say, oh, this is Facebook meta trying to do bad stuff again, it seems perfectly reasonable. Give us time. We'll yell at them on the next story. Have you two ever come across any problems with leap seconds then? Or has it just all been taken care of by the distro maintainers? Honestly, no, I can't say that I've ever really seen anything. I guess the place where you'd see it the most is if there was some real big bug in the kernel that was going to cause an issue, or you might see some slight overlap or weirdness in logs, but it's nothing that I've ever come across. For the most part, the only place you're going to see that as an issue is if you're actually running an NTP server, you know, high up in the stratum that has to be down to the nanosecond precise. It becomes a big issue then. Uh, for people who are just operating like vaguely normal servers, you've got considerably higher drift going on in your internal clock hardware that has to have constant adjustment anyway. So you're constantly getting your time smeared by the NTP daemon as it you know updates you to match time. Typically, there's going to be triangulated between at least three other remote servers, you know, in, in a higher stratum to try to get you to where you ought to be, despite the fact that there's a lag in between when you can query those servers and when they respond. So it all gets pretty complex, but either you care enough to run NTP and your time is already being smeared all the time, there's no reason for you to even notice or care whether the upstream servers are smearing or not because yours are, or you care even less than that because, you know, if your server jumps a second or two or, you know, maybe even a minute in the logs, you, you just don't care. Which for the majority of the servers I run, I'm I'm in that camp. I don't really care that much. If it's within a few seconds, if it's enough that it's not causing SSL problems even, that's good enough for me. Yeah, and for me, I think running stuff at scale, as long as I'm able to correlate logs and traces between different boxes and different services, probably fine. And generally, that's like Jim said, within a few seconds is is generally enough. 
All right, Jim, you wanted to have a go at Meta about something else then? Absolutely. The headline here honestly says the majority of what there is to say uh, from Ars Technica, Meta thinks Facebook may need more harmful health misinformation. I wish I could say that was an inaccurate, sensationalist, clickbaity headline, but it really isn't. The gist of it is Facebook, Meta, whatever you want to call them today, were basically forced to start limiting the spread of disinformation campaigns, including health-related ones, with the COVID pandemic. And now that they feel that public angst about COVID has died down some, they would like to go right on back to allowing people to scam you and tell you lies and, you know, get you worked up with conspiracy theories because that drives engagement and engagement means money in their pocket. And they like that. The more people click on these clickbaity things on their site, the more money they make is fundamentally what it is. And I guess by and large, the type of people who are going to see this stuff on Facebook and believe it are the type of people who are going to be pulled into that misinformation. So whatever way you look at it, there is a strong financial incentive for Facebook to allow people to post pretty much what they like in terms of misinformation and know that the kind of people who are going to click the misinformation aren't the kind of people who are going to fact check it. And then it proliferates more and more. And that's more dollars in Matt's pocket. And let's be clear here. You know, the the Facebook party line reads a bit more like, you know, we shouldn't be in the business of arbiting what is misinformation versus what is valid information. But the reality is they aren't. They never have been. As they've been slapping fact check notices on conspiracy theory posts as they've been required to, they're not the ones making that decision. This all comes from independent fact-checking sources. By the time they slap a misinformation warning on a post, it's not because somebody at Facebook was like, oh, that was crap. It's because three or more different independent fact-checkers all came to a consensus that this is misinformation. Here's why it's misinformation. Here is is detailed a breakdown of what is wrong with this and whether it's partially correct or entirely fabricated and why. None of this comes from Facebook. It's literally just putting the tiniest check on the spread of conspiracy theories. And that's what they all are when it comes down to it. The spread of ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine and, you know, drinking bleach and all this other crap, it doesn't come from like misunderstanding what some scientists said. All of these things come from wildly disaffected people who are susceptible to conspiracy theories that boil down to the lizard people are out to get me. And if you expose folks who are weak to conspiracy theories to a wide selection of them, they adopt more and more of them. I believe the movie was American Werewolf in London, where, uh, you know, people are getting murdered left and right by these lycanthropes. And uh, a scientist who's researching it looks at another one, pops a potato chip in his mouth and says, bitch, can't eat just one. That's how conspiracy theories work. If you are the kind of person who buys into conspiracy theories, you don't just buy into one. That's not how that works. There's a whole range of them. By the time that Facebook has done this fact-checking and stuff, depending on who has posted this misinformation, the damage is already done. If a popular enough person goes out there and says, do you know what, drinking bleach is going to cure COVID, people have already seen that by the time that it's labeled misinformation. And that stuff perpetuates like wildfire. I can't agree that, you know, putting the fact check notice on there is not a good. I I think that is a good. There are people who will refuse to believe it. There are people who saw it before the fact check. It's like anti-malware measures. 
Yeah, none of them really help against a, a zero day, but they keep zero days from still being a zero day six months later. Yeah, I guess if you are the kind of person who is going to believe those things, you're going to believe them whether Facebook tells you that it's misinformation or not. But maybe subconsciously it helps a little bit. Yeah, yeah. I, I would much rather that it was there than not there. But I think for the most hardcore people who believe those things, they're probably going to be thinking that Facebook is the lizard people and Facebook is out to get them as much as anyone else is. But for every one of those people, there's 10 other people that aren't really the conspiracy theory vulnerable types. But if they're presented with this stuff couched in such a way that it sounds reasonable to the limits of their scientific education, which is not necessarily going to be tremendous, then they can be swayed. And there is a big difference between seeing somebody saying, oh, hydroxychloroquine, you know, cured my Rona and it's great. And that's the next big thing. And here's 10 scientists that say it's awesome. There's a big difference between just seeing that and seeing, you know, a fact check warning that breaks down who those 10 quote unquote scientists are and why that's a problem. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think if you can, if you can save the 10 people, then it's absolutely worth doing. I think that the issue here, I guess, is Facebook pretending that it's them doing this because really, like you say, it's not. Never was, never will be. I saw an interesting article in the Washington Post by Jeffrey Fowler. The headline is, Electronics are built with death dates. Let's not keep them a secret. And he talks about how most electronic devices these days have batteries that are glued in, soldered in, non-replaceable. And after a few years, those batteries are pretty much useless. And then you've just got a bunch of e-waste. And it reminded me of Alan's idea of putting a updated until label on, on routers and stuff. When Jeffrey says that we should have labels on these products saying these AirPods are going to last two years and then they're going to die. And it seems like a really good idea to me. That seems like the absolute bare minimum. <laughs> you know, the, the better idea would, would be honestly, I'm sorry, you know, unregulated free market libertarians, but this is where regulation really ought to come in. There is not a good reason to be putting all these devices out here with glued in non-replaceable batteries that are going to, that are going to die. And in a lot of cases, you know, it's bad enough when you talk about AirPods and they've only got a certain lifetime before you've exhausted, you know, the, the charge endurance on the battery and the battery becomes dead and has to be tossed out. I mean, we could talk about tile. Tile just puts batteries in that there is no recharging. They live for about six months and then the thing is dead and you chuck it in the trash where it goes to a landfill because you can't recharge it. You can't replace it. You can't anything it. You just buy more. And it gobsmacks me that, you know, people are buying these things in the what hundreds of thousands, millions. One of the things he talks about on here is even more mass market consumer than AirPods or Tile. Like he's talking about electric toothbrushes at certain points on here, where not only is that battery going to die after a year or two, depending on how much you use it and how much you recharge it, but you can't even throw the thing away without smashing it with a hammer because the battery is molded in. So you can't even dispose of the device responsibly. And that is a really, really big issue for, let's face it, something that most people own. We got to be honest here. Consumers are never en masse going to dispose of batteries properly on their own. You know, there are exceptions here or there. I fully believe, Gary, that you would smash your toothbrush apart with a hammer to get the battery out. My wife would certainly do the same thing. We've got glass jars in the house that are just, you know, packed chock full 
of uh, you know dead A and double A cells in devices that require those that go off to be properly recycled you know in the battery disposal places, but we are not the majority. I don't even think we're a plurality. Oh no, absolutely. You know, my mum would just take that toothbrush, throw it in the bin, and go to the store and buy a new one. Right? She's not going to take it apart and dispose of the battery properly. In fact, to be honest, I don't think most consumers are even going to do that for something that has a user-replaceable battery. You know, they're going to take out the double A's, they're going to put them in the general waste bin, and they're going to put two new double A's in and perpetuate the cycle forever. So, yeah, I think, like you say, it goes much deeper than just these devices with sealed batteries. You know, I think back to even when phones had replaceable batteries, people might be tempted to go on eBay and buy a replacement battery for their you know, Galaxy or you know, Nokia phone or whatever it was, but they're still going to throw that old lithium-ion cell straight in the bin, and it's not going to be disposed of responsibly at all. So I think it does go deeper than just putting an expiry date on stuff. Even after you smash it apart with a hammer to pull the battery out, you still really shouldn't be throwing the rest of the toothbrush in the bin. It should be going to e-waste with or without the battery in it. So, I mean, obviously, I'm a working IT consultant. I deal with tons of businesses as well as individual people. And we have an e-waste disposal center in my town that is – it's just an open – 18-wheeler trailer without the actual truck. It's just the trailer. It's parked in a lot. It's wide open. It is the easiest possible thing to deal with. You wander up with your bag or your box or your trunk full of old electronic crap and you chuck it in and, you know, they will sort it and process it and whatever after. It could not be any easier, but I have yet to speak to anyone in my professional career as an IT guy who has even heard of the e-waste center in my town, much less uses it. Yeah, I think it's a pretty similar story here. There are recycling centers run by local authorities in most big towns. You've probably got to drive maybe 20 minutes to get to your nearest one. But if someone's phone dies, they still are just going to throw it in the general waste. Most people are not going to bother to go out of their way to dispose of that responsibly. And I don't know if that's a laziness thing. I don't know if that's an education thing and they don't understand what's in that device and the harm it can cause if you just throw it in a landfill. But I think there is a serious endemic problem here. It's both of those things and one in between. There are people who legitimately just don't know. There are people who legitimately just don't care. And there are people who don't want to admit that they don't care. They have heard it, but if they refuse to believe it, then they can ignore it and still feel good about themselves. You know, like, oh, it's not a big deal if that battery goes in the landfill. And, you know, then the problem's just solved in their head. I think that's the majority of folks. I think at this point... Most people have at least heard, like, you know, don't pour your used motor oil in a hole in the backyard. <laughs> don't throw batteries in the landfill, whatever. But most folks just don't care that much. Yeah. I mean, once I've put that thing in the bin and the garbage trucks come and collected it and taken it away, it's not my problem anymore. When I used to work for a residential remodeling firm, I learned a common contractor saying, when you get done with the job and, you know, something's not quite right, looks fine from my house. <laughs> well challenge anyone in the UK to take the side off of your bath and uh, tell me that contractors dispose of waste properly. <laughs> <laughs> okay, this episode is sponsored by Linode. Go to linode.com slash 25A, support the show and get $100 free credit. From their award-winning support, offered 24-7, 365 to every level of user, to ease of use and setup, it's clear why developers have been trusting Linode for projects both big and small since 2003. 
Deploy your entire application stack with Linode's one-click app marketplace or build it all from scratch and manage everything yourself with supported centralized tools like Terraform. And check out their managed MySQL, Postgres, and MongoDB databases that allow you to quickly deploy a new database and defer management tasks like configuration, managing high availability, disaster recovery, backups, and data replication. Simple and fast to deploy with secure access, their flexible plans include daily backups. So go to leno.com slash 25A, create a free account, and you get $100 in credit and support the show. That's leno.com slash 25A. I've seen a few articles recently about new home building in West London and how developers have been told that they pretty much can't build any new homes because West London just doesn't have the capacity in the electrical grid. And that may well have something to do with all the data centers that are in West London. And it made me think about a broader problem as well of uh, electric vehicles and stuff and how, especially in London, we we have this creaking electrical grid and uh, it's actually starting to cause proper problems now. Yeah, I mean, it's causing problems out in the sticks where I live as well. You know, a lot of houses have only got 60 or 80 amp service out here. And if you want to add solar to your house or you want to add an EV charger, you very quickly find that you know 60 or 80 amps, or even in some cases 100 amps, depending on how big your solar array is, is a real problem. Adding to that, that you know a lot of the places around here are creaky overhead electrical lines that have been there for 50 years since the houses are built. I think there is an infrastructure issue that is sneaking up on us quite quickly here. It's the technical debt discussion that we had in the last episode, you know, in hardware form. You say, ah, well, we ran wires, we're good to go. We never have to think about that again. Well, no, <laughs> you, you do, actually. <laughs> you need to plan ahead, and part of that planning ahead is over-provisioning to start with, so you got room to grow. Another part of planning ahead is saying, I think it's probably really likely that we're going to need to upgrade this again more than is practical right now in 20 years or 50 years or whatever. And, you know, have that baked into your budgetary planning. You know, don't just act like, oh, it's complete news to us that we need to revise electrical systems, parts of which have been in service for probably a century. Yeah, no, it's it's not a surprise. You know, it's that's just been there and you've been ignoring it. Yeah, and that broadly seems to be the case because you know, these data centers that have been built out in West London, they would have gone through the planning approvals process. And you just have to think that the planners just hadn't considered that this might even be an issue with this huge amount of power that's being consumed until now where it's clearly too late because, like it or not, there is a problem with housing supply in big cities in the UK, particularly in London, and they kind of need these houses built pretty quickly. So this just does feel like a lack of foresight from from the planning departments. I find it also kind of interesting that you've got all these data centers in the middle of like, you know, incredibly heavily populated areas. Usually these days, you know, you build data centers in the sticks because way out in the sticks, the land is super cheap. You don't need a huge number of people to staff a data center, you know, compared to the size of the investment in the freaking thing. So, you know, you got the room, you got cheap land, you can offer the people that are going to work there a cheaper place to live. It just kind of works better all the way around. I think one of the big problems we have in the UK is that there's hugely siloed talent within London, particularly in the IT space. And that's gotten better in the last couple of years with the pandemic and stuff. And people have been offered good salaries to, to go and work outside of London. But for the longest time, if you wanted decent talent and decent connectivity and stuff into the data center, doing it in or around a big city was the only game in town. It used to be that way, you know, on this side of the pond in the United States also. It's just, uh, 
I think it's probably been a solid decade since most of the big players realized, you know, it may be a little bit more money up front in some cases to get the infrastructure, you know, for power or data or whatever. But it's freaking worth it because we can buy a county over here for what it would cost us, you know, to buy a campus just outside San Francisco or what have you. Like you need to be close enough that, you know, literal speed of light latency isn't going to be a problem. But beyond that, I mean, you don't really have to be super close. Microsoft has been smart. Oh, good. I get to get people to hate us because I say something positive about Microsoft. (laughs) Microsoft has had an interesting pie in the sky project for a while. They've put in limited production. Uh, They do these underseas data centers. So you've basically got a waterproof trailer you dump, you know, several racks of servers into, and then you just submerge the sucker just offshore. You get free cooling, you get incredibly cheap land because it's underwater someplace where, you know, people didn't have a lovely beach anyway, and uh, it's not getting in the way. And ultimately, again, you really shouldn't need a huge amount of staff in a data center. If you need lots of humans wandering the aisles in a data center, you built that thing wrong. Should we not be considering the power usage of data centers, though, and trying to get more efficient cooling, more efficient servers running in them? Well, the cooling is is going to be a huge, huge amount of that. And here I'm backing into saying nice things about Microsoft, but, you know, submerge them. And all of a sudden, instead of burning, you know, tons of power on, on heat pumps and consuming all this refrigerant, yada, 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 you just need big old veins sticking out in the ocean. I guess in terms of the compute, a lot of cloud providers are heavily promoting moving to newer instance types now, which are going to be running on new CPUs, which have better performance per watt. Certainly, the two biggest cloud providers have huge ARM presence now in their data centers, and they're doing everything they can to enable workloads to run on ARM. So these things are happening, but there is going to be a long tail of people who are running on old, janky x86 hardware that are unwilling or unable to move to something more efficient. Let's do some free consulting then. But first, just a quick thank you to everyone who supports us with PayPal and Patreon. We really appreciate that. If you want to learn more about that, you can go to 2.5admins.com slash support. And remember, for $5 or more per month on Patreon, you can get an advert-free RSS feed. And if you want to send in your questions or your feedback, you can email show at 2.5admins.com. Okay, Logan says, in my home lab, I run a few Docker containers, Gitir, Drone, and Miniflux, that require a database, Postgres. This Postgres database is on a separate VM host from the Docker containers. It gives me one central place to manage my databases. Would you recommend instead putting a separate Postgres Docker container on the same stack as each Docker application? I would store the database info in Docker managed volumes. This would give me three separate Postgres containers and eliminate database traffic going over my network and even possibly speed up my applications. So in answer to your question in short, yes, I would go with the separate Docker container running Postgres for each application. This is what I do in my home lab. I've not really seen any issues with it. For certain applications that are a bit more picky about the database version, it allows me to roll those database versions up and down individually for applications. It makes the backup of the Postgres DBs a lot easier because like you said here, you're using Docker managed volumes for the Postgres. So I can just take a snapshot of that Docker managed volume. It just makes all that stuff way easier. In terms of the management overhead, this is your home lab. You're probably not needing to open PG Admin that much and go and do ad hoc stuff on the DB. So I don't see that as being an issue. The performance stuff you mentioned, to be honest, if you're running a standard gigabit network at home, 
I don't think you're going to see any real performance difference in running the Postgres on the same box as the application in most cases. All you'd be doing here is running a linked set of containers or a user-defined network. Like you said, spinning them up in Docker Compose in the same stack would do that by default with you. You reference the DB by the container name and everything should be absolutely fine. So yeah, I would go for one Postgres per application. Yeah, I agree with Gary here. I would state it a little differently. Basically, what you're asking is, you know, should I silo my storage and compute and and data away from one another and, you know, have separate silos to manage? Or should I run, you know, something more like what in the VM world we would call a hyperconverged setup where everything's, you know, all in one chassis, all in one box? I will say as far as the, the performance issue goes, there's no question about it. You will absolutely have lower latency without a general purpose gigabit LAN in the middle. But the interesting question there is just, do you need higher performance? I can't tell you how many times in my professional career somebody asks, you know, can I get better performance if I do this? And my answer very frequently is, do you need better performance? So yeah, that's a big thing. And the biggest thing I think of this from the perspective of, you know, you managing this stuff in a home lab, it's a home lab, but, you know, presumably you care about these things. If you do run the separate DB that runs in the same stack with the Docker application, it means that you've got one thing to back up and restore. Whereas if you silo everything away, well, now you've got a much more complex setup and you may need to restore one thing without restoring the other. Or, you know, after you restore, you've got to figure out configuration issues to connect the two of them. And that gets to be much more of a pain in the butt. Until you're at the scale of like you have thousands of things you're managing, many thousands, I think it's very rarely a good idea to silo things. It's it's much better to have self-contained, like, this is a thing, it has a job, all the pieces it needs are in one place, and I can back that up, and I can restore that, and I can understand that in situ as it is. Yep, and that's exactly what I do. I've had occasions before where I've got a Nextcloud set up in Docker that has a Postgres backend. There's been a few occasions where Nextcloud has done something wonky with the sync, and I've just rolled back the app data volume and the DB all at once. And that way, you know, I'm not having to roll back an entire database server, work out where these backups taken at the same time. Is there going to be you know, a missync between what the application thinks it's written to the DB and what's actually going to be written to the DB? It's a home lab. Just roll back both of the volumes and you should be good to go. Okay, Mayar writes, I'm planning to create an application and when researching which SQL DB to use, it was not easy to decide which. MySQL is the most popular, but owned by Oracle. Postgres is more modern and promoted by the community, but it requires more storage and is less popular. Do you have any tips on how to choose the right SQL DB? Thanks in advance, and I'm kind of entertained hearing you trying to pronounce my name, smiley face. Yeah, sorry about the butchering of your name. Well, first of all, I'll give your name a shot too, Mayar. Uh, I probably got it wrong, but at least I got it wrong a different way from Joe. Uh, as far as choosing the database, uh, the big thing here is that like you're the developer and you do get to choose. So a lot of the answer really comes down to what are you most comfortable with? You know, as you dip your toes in each of the possible options, which one appeals to you more, you know, in the way that you interact with it, in the the way that the libraries that you wrap your calls to it in work, that's probably going to make a lot of the difference. When it comes down to performance, most of them are pretty close these days. The The rule of thumb used to be that MySQL is for speed and Postgres is for uh, correctness. 
I think Postgres probably still has somewhat of an edge in you know correctness, you know, in terms of like being able to be certain that you've properly wrapped everything in transactions and if you have a crash that you know everything will roll back properly, all this kind of thing. Honestly, I'm not the biggest expert in this because while I administer some databases, I'm not usually going to be the guy that writes the database back to application. Now, as far as the concern with Oracle owning MySQL, I wouldn't worry about that. I, I really would not. I mean, I don't love Oracle any more than anybody else loves Oracle, believe me. But they have been excellent stewards of the MySQL project. When the split first happened and MySQL went to Oracle and, you know, the original MySQL folks forked and spun it up as MariahDB, I fully expected that everybody would just be using MariahDB everywhere. That hasn't been the case. I think both are fine examples of a MySQL compatible database backend. And for the purposes of somebody who's writing code as a developer to interact with it, you can really just drop one in in place of the other unless you're doing some incredibly deep specialized things in one or the other. So I wouldn't concern yourself about that. It really is just going to come down more than anything else, like I said, to what do you feel most comfortable developing in? What are you most comfortable developing in? Does the language you're using have decent APIs that you can use to call whichever DB? And I guess if this is a small application and you're going to be running it, which database are you more happy administering? They're the really the only things I would consider if I was starting to build an application from scratch. Well, there is one other thing that should be considered, although Miar didn't actually ask it, and that is, should I be using a SQL DB in the first place? You only need or want a SQL database if you're actually going to be doing relational joins between tables, first, second, and third normal form, you know, all that good nonsense. Now, if you're just like storing values and retrieving them and you don't need complex relationships, you're usually going to be better off with something simpler a key value store, or for you know, for a minute there, it was popular to call it NoSQL. But uh, basically, if you just need to store data and retrieve it again without this complex set of relationships between different tables, many to one, one to many, many to many, yada yada yada, then avoid SQL entirely and go with something, you know, Redis, Memcache, you know, you name it. It'll be higher performance, simpler to manage and uh, better suited to what you're actually doing. In a lot of cases, you may even want both. You know, you may have a lot of data that's just key value, and it should probably go in a simpler key value store, and then a little data that does need to be relational, and it can go in an actual SQL database. Yeah, and of course, you've got time series and stuff like that, but if you're asking about SQL DBs, then you're probably not storing time series data, or at least I would hope you weren't. Or perhaps you're just early in your journey of learning about storing time series data. We all got to start somewhere. I have friends who work for Influx Data, so I should probably plug InfluxDB for that kind of thing. Right, well, we'd better get out of here then. Thank you, Gary, for joining us for the last couple of episodes covering for Alan. Well, thanks for having me. Yeah, it's been great. Remember, show at 2.5admins.com is the email address if you want to get in touch with us with your questions or feedback. You can find me on Twitter at Joe Ressington. I'm at JRSSNet. And I'm at This Geek Tweets. We'll see you next week.